Good morning. If you were here last week or you did tune in during the week while Tim and I were having a bit of a chat, um, gave you a heads up that we're going to be dealing with some sensitive topics, sensitive passages over the coming weeks and today is one of those weeks and we're going to be talking about sex. And so for teens here, younger ones here, you're probably already a little bit nervously excited about what I might say, maybe a little bit embarrassed, I've already said the word sex in church and now I've said it twice. If you're finding it difficult to concentrate, you could try to count how many times I say the word sex. Three, so far. Parents, you are probably also a little bit nervous, for different reasons maybe. So let me hopefully ease the tension a little bit. Um, I don't intend to be any more explicit than what the text is that we're going to be reading today. I do plan on speaking fairly candidly about the subject, sex, but not explicitly. And so I hope you can relax a little bit with that. And with all that out of the way, let's actually read the text and uh, see what God has to say. And then we need to ask God's help in understanding the implications of this passage, both, I think, in our thinking and in our doing. So let's read it, then we're going to pray. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to read from verse 12 down to the end of the chapter, and that's going to be our primary text that we're thinking of today. You got it? Okay, follow along best you can. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and stomach for the food. And God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So, should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For Scripture says, the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with Him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? 
You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. That's God's word. Let's ask his help to understand it. Lord, this is a a difficult subject because it's a subject um, that we are impacted by almost every moment of our waking life. And so, Lord, as we read, reflect and speak this morning, may the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight, O God. Amen. All right, I'm going to break this passage up into just three areas that I think um, Paul is sort of trying to drive at this morning. Uh, The first section I've titled, Not All Natural Appetites Are Helpful. Not All Natural Appetites Are Helpful. Just the first two verses, just to refresh them in our mind again, verses 12 and verse 13. I want you to notice in the text that you're reading from, the Bible that you're reading from, whether it's the Christian Standard Bible, ESV, NIV, if none of those letters mean anything to you, just whatever, whatever Bible you're reading from. Um, There's a, a bunch of phrases in these opening verses which should be in quotation marks. For example, everything is permissible for me. That's repeated twice in verse 12, and both of those should probably be in quotation marks. Everything is permissible for me. The other one that's in quotation marks is in verse 13, food is for the stomach and stomach for the food. All of those are sayings that Paul is um, referencing. Now, we don't know where he's necessarily referencing them from. It could have been a common saying of the day, but let's read them, verse 12 and verse 13, just to refresh our memory with what he said. Everything is permissible for me. It's a common saying, probably, of Paul's day. Everything is permissible for me. But not everything is beneficial, he says. Again, repeats it. Everything is permissible for me. Paul adds, but I will not be mastered by everything. Ah, What about this saying? Food is for the stomach and stomach for the food. Paul says, and God will do away with both of them. Let's just pause there, partway through that verse, end of that sentence. I want to make a couple of observations that I think spring from this text. Um, An observation that is directly related to the text, something that we've just read, and probably an observation which is from our wider culture and probably engages with the subject of our sexuality, and I think it it's in reference to what we're just reading here. So let's just consider um, that wider observation more broadly. I think this addresses the wider culture's view of sexuality. And I think not only the, the wider culture's view of sexuality, but probably how that starts to impact we who are disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, who live in the middle of this very sexual culture that we find ourselves within. So first, we need to acknowledge, I think, the absolute pervasive nature of sexuality in our culture. Right? We cannot escape 
sexuality. And, and if you've been a Christian for a while, maybe when we say that word and we think about the world's view of sexuality, we think of negative things. We think of damaging things. We think of uh, ways that it's been perverted by this world. But even without thinking about what is good and what is bad, the reality is that from the moment humans have existed on this planet, sexuality has been a big part of who we are. A an expression of our sexuality. Not just in the act of sex, but in the sense of the way that it's used to motivate our thinking. All of us, I imagine, would not be surprised by the fact that sexuality, sex itself, and things that are associated with that are one of the most powerful advertising forces there are. Because they know how much it affects our psyche. It affects the way that we think. It affects the, what we do. So we need to understand that we live in a very sexual world. We are not only created anatomically for each other, but psychologically, right? Both as sexual beings in the way that we are as male and female, but also sexual beings in the way that we think. It's part of our nature. It is neither good nor bad. It is simply there. And we must realise that. We must acknowledge it. But I think this reality has caused a huge dilemma for every person on the planet, regardless of their faith or of their belief. Because if we are sexual beings, if we have a sense of sexuality as a part of our identity as people, then is there such a thing as healthy sexuality and unhealthy sexuality? Are there healthy ways or unhealthy ways to express sexuality? Now, history has shown us, history has told us that in every culture, in every period of time on this earth, they have developed some type of code, some type of common agreement within their own society as to what is acceptable sexual behaviour. They've also agreed on what, it, what sexual behaviours are to be rejected as being either unhealthy for the person or unhealthy for their society. Those things are often referred to as taboo, right? I think it's a shame that in lots of ways amongst Christians, just speaking about this subject matter has almost become taboo. And it shouldn't be. For Christians, we also include an understanding of a divine code an understanding of human sexuality that isn't only a mutually agreed on, like a, cultural, a culturally agreed on sense of who we are and the way that we should express ourselves, that happens regardless, but as Christians we also see that God, the one who created us as sexual beings, has also defined what is healthy and what is not. I can't speak of the specifics of every culture across every time period, but I can make some observations about our culture in our time. I think you would probably see these. I don't think that, that I am um, particularly bright to be able to come up with things that no one's ever seen. 
Um, if that was the case, I'm probably wrong. I think one of the defining markers of our contemporary uh, sexual conversation that takes place in our time is centred around the term fulfilment. How should I be fulfilled? And in particular, how that references to my sexual identity. I think this is used to push the conversation towards the issue of fulfilling a desire. And the logic works like this. If, if, I have, if I have within me a natural desire, in particularly sexual desire, if I have within me a natural desire or a natural appetite, isn't it wrong not to fulfill that desire? After all, it's natural, right? It's just natural. It's just come to me. If I'm feeling it, it must be, must be natural, therefore it must be fulfilled. If I say something is a natural desire and I put a boundary there and I put a door there and I say, no, that must not be fulfilled, then our, our culture, our society is saying, you are doing something unnatural because you're not allowing that natural desire to be fulfilled. All right, it carries the assumption that all natural desires, all appetites are inherently good. And if we say that a certain desire shouldn't be satisfied, we are going against nature and therefore must be wrong. That's one of the defining markers of the current sexual conversation in our society. I think that's certainly true of the debate around sexuality being expressed outside of a heterosexual relationship. But it still applies to the conversation around the topics of sexuality and youth, sexuality and its expression prior to marriage, and even healthy sexual boundaries within marriage. So I think what Paul is saying here speaks directly into that cultural understanding. And while in 2022, we feel in our society that we are so progressive and so liberated in our sexual freedom and sexual understanding, the reality is all we are doing is recycling and rebranding a mindset that has been in existence for hundreds of years, thousands of years maybe. That phrase that was in quotations that Paul picks up, everything is permissible. Everything is permissible. All right. When the world says this, they mean nothing is off the menu. Everything is permissible. Nothing is off the menu. If I am basically good, that means, if I am a basically good person and I desire a certain thing, whatever that thing might be, then that must also be good, right? My nature is good, I desire it, therefore that must be good. Because my desire is natural. It is a good thing to satisfy natural desires. That's the, the basic understanding of that logic. It is a good thing to satisfy natural desires. Paul says, everything is permissible for me. 
Look at what Paul says, though. Maybe you are free. I mean, even as Christians, we could go to other passages in the Bible. Paul talks about our freedom in Christ, our liberty in Christ. He says, I'm free to do whatever I like. Even if you want to take Paul's sentence like that, Paul's meaning like that, and start to apply it to the, to the sexual conversation and say, oh, everything is permissible for me. As a Christian, you know, I'm, I'm free in Christ. God has forgiven all my sins. God will forgive all my sins. He has forgiven all my sins. Everything is permissible for me. Even if you go there with that sentence, Paul says, yeah, maybe you are free. Maybe your desires and your appetites, maybe, maybe those things are even legal. All right? We're not even talking about illegal things, things that are completely legal in our country. Maybe you desire those things in that by satisfying those desires, you aren't breaking any laws. But Paul is saying just because you can doesn't mean you should. All right? Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. The way he does that is by giving us a principle to consider. All right? first, first principle is this, the second one's related to it, taken one at a time. Everything is permissible for me is the underlying cultural understanding. Okay? Paul says, first thing you need to ask yourself though is, is it beneficial? Is it beneficial? In other words, I, I could satisfy this particular desire, but will it benefit? Will it benefit? Is it helpful? As a Christian this morning, we are surrounded every day by desires and by sexual desires. Whether you are married, whether you're single, whether you were once married and now not married, it doesn't matter who we are. We are surrounded and influenced, even in ways that we cannot fathom, by a sexual culture which produces desires within us. We ask ourselves, is this beneficial? Will I grow closer to Christ through this? Will it mature my walk as a disciple? In the case of possible sexual relationships, am I even considering if this will be beneficial to my partner? Will this help them grow closer to Christ? Will this bring them into a closer walk with Jesus? Will they mature as a disciple? Everything might be permissible... But is it beneficial? That's the first principle Paul asks to consider. Second one is this. When I think about the possibilities of fulfilling a sexual desire, Paul asks, who will be mastered by this? Who will be mastered by this? This is a question of control. This is a question to try and dig beneath my desires to see if I am anything more than a puppet on the string of lust. Because our desires can trick us. We start to think, well, I desire this, therefore I'm in control. I, I want to do this, 
Therefore, I'm the one in control in this situation. But Paul is saying, so often in the sexual conversation, we're not in control at all. We're being mastered. We're being puppeteered. So while I may feel as though a certain act is okay to engage with, Paul is saying, am I actually in control of my actions or am I a slave to my passions? The inference of this is so often we are a slave to our passions. Third time he puts quotation marks here. See, the issue here is the relationship between our desire and the satisfaction of our desire. What we desire and what we will do to fulfill our desire. And so he quotes, I think, another common statement that's found within his culture. And I think we can relate to it. It's this, food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food. What's he saying? Food is for the stomach. All right, this is my stomach. What else is it good for? Right? My stomach is designed to put food into it. And what's food designed for? Well, food is designed to put it in my stomach. I put a little bit too much in mine. We understand that when we break it down, we just go, yeah, look, there are some natural relationships that exist within the, the human body. Right? My stomach is to store food in, food, I, I look at that and I go, I want to put food in my stomach. And yet he's talking about it in the sexual relationship context. He, he wants us to understand something true about that statement and the way that it can be applied to this. So if we are built for sex, this is how we could... We could define this. If, if we are built for sex, I'm, I'm talking just anatomically, male and female. If we are built for sex, and if we desire sex, right, then sex is the ultimate goal. That's the way that logic works when we try to cross it over from the food and stomach scenario. In other words, we could say, don't don't go against nature. Let nature take its course. It's natural. The thing is, though, Paul says food and stomachs don't last forever. There's a time coming when neither will be required like they are now. And the same is true of sex. Right? We can barely imagine a world that is good and satisfying that doesn't contain sexual expression. It just does not even register for us. It's barely comprehensible. But Paul is inferring here that we have our list of priorities all out of order. Things that we call ultimate aren't. In fact, in the scheme of eternity, they are important and good in the right place, but they aren't the highest good or even the most important. So here's how I'd summarize Paul's opening sentence here. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. 
And just because you're hungry doesn't mean you should eat. To be even plainer, just because you can have sex or want to have sex doesn't mean you should. There is more at stake than the satisfaction of your desires. There is more at stake than the satisfaction of your desires. Which leads me on to the second part. That bit was sort of the longest bit, just in case you're thinking, man, we're going to be here talking about sex all day. All right? We're not. Verses 13 down to verse 17. Let's read it to remind ourselves of where Paul is going here. So partway through verse 13, we, we, we stopped halfway through. Let's pick it back up again. Paul says, however, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it a part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? The scripture says the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. All right, let me be very clear here. Paul is not anti-sex. Nor should any church be, or any Christian for that matter. Sex is a precious gift to the human race and it has its own type of unique glory. Which is why it fascinates us as humans. I think the problem is, is that we've ascribed the glory of sex to just one dimension of its complexity. Right? If sex is the big picture... We've isolated just one pixel, one stroke of the paintbrush in that painting. And we've elevated that one little spot above all the others. And that single element is that of the physical component of sex. All right. But the glory of sex is far more than physical. So when sex is reduced to an act that can be performed, we strip away its very heart and its very soul. So here's the principle of this little section, and then I just want to unpack a few of the implications that I think Paul mentions here. Did you notice that Paul quotes, maybe your Bible bolds or puts a quotation mark or a footnote or something, but he quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. 24. Genesis 2, verse 24, he quotes, and he just quotes one little part of it. The two will become one flesh. I want to read to you the whole verse. Genesis chapter 2, this is the creation account, where God forms man from the dust, takes from his side a rib, and forms his partner, his wife Eve. Man and woman, he calls them. I don't care what anyone says, we still just have man and woman. This is why a man leaves his father and mother 
and bonds with his wife or joins with his wife and they become one flesh. That's Genesis 2, verse 24. And he quotes it as a way of drawing on a human reality, I think, that was formed in our very creation as a race. If you've ever had, or if you can think back to the time that your parents sat you down to have the talk, do you remember that? The talk. Maybe as a parent you're wrestling with, when should I have the talk with my children? And there's lots of resources, helpful resources around now to help parents have healthy sexual conversations with children. Maybe you're from an era where you would remember that that wasn't called the talk. Instead, it was, my parents sat me down to tell me about the birds and the bees. I still cannot quite figure out what the birds and the bees have to do with all of that. But nonetheless, we all chuckle and we know, oh, they're the birds and the bees. We have all sorts of funny ways of describing this. But if you remember that, you know that there is a physical difference between a man and a woman. You also know that those differences create a matching pair that were designed to fit with each other. And somewhere along the way, even as Christians, we have reduced the term one flesh to somehow describe or somehow make us think about the physical union between a man and a woman, that they become one flesh. But I think Paul is saying, I think the Bible is saying that it's so much more than that. I think it's no mistake that so often as you read through your Bibles and there's some reference or some expression to the sexual joining of a man and a woman, that it will use this term. And then Adam knew his wife. Or whoever it is in the Bible, that the sexual act, the sexual joining of two people will often be described as, as a man knowing his wife. Because the glory of sex is so much more than the physical joining, the physical act. There is something profoundly intimate which goes well beyond the physical nature of sex that occurs. There is a unique and powerful connection that takes place. And this connection is intimate in a thousand additional ways than just physical intimacy. Right? There's a joining of emotions, there's a joining of dreams, there's a joining of identity, there's a joining even, I would say, of spirituality. In every possible way, sex is designed to make one new mutual identity out of two distinctly different people. And the miracle is that it does so without diminishing the precious and distinct identity of either person. Sex like that, within the God-given expression of marriage and the lifelong commitment to a single other person, is a profound and spiritual experience. But when we remove sex from this environment, 
from the garden where it best flourishes. That gift quickly becomes a curse. Because in the broadest sense, this is what I think Paul means by the term sexual immorality. It simply means the pursuit of sexual expression outside of the healthy boundaries that God designed for it to flourish in. Did you see verse 13? Our bodies aren't made for that type of sexual expression. We will fall under the weight of it. Instead, our bodies, he says, are made for the Lord. I think that this means that healthy sexual expression between a husband and a wife is an act of pure worship. Paul could have said that our bodies is for our wife, or for wives, your body is for your husband. He, he could have said that, but he says, our body is for the Lord. So individually, as Christians, you are joined with Christ in a profoundly intimate way, and this is the basis of why immorality is such a problem. You see, because I am joined with Jesus as a Christian, I am in Christ, I am joined with Jesus every moment of every day, whether I'm asleep, whether I'm awake, doesn't matter what I'm doing, I am joined with Jesus. And so when I join myself to another person, I bring Jesus with me. That's, that's what Paul is saying here. So if I'm tempted to pursue an affair, I'm carrying Jesus into that. If I'm tempted to pay a stranger to satisfy sexual desires, I'm taking Jesus into that. And even if I've justified my sexual desire by saying, well, I would never do any of those things with a real person, but I'll pretend I am with an image that I can see on a screen or from a memory that I hold in my mind, then I'm taking Jesus into those places too. And Paul says, should I be willing to do that? Should I be comfortable with that? And he answers it, exclamation point, absolutely not. Now, I I know that many of you have felt and even still feel the unique pain that comes from broken sexual relationships. Because if something is joined together so closely, it is bound to tear and leave jagged scars in the soul when it is torn apart. Maybe you still carry shame and regret. And maybe you're wondering... Can God ever restore the broken places of our lives and of our relationships? And I want to answer you this morning, 
He can. He is. He is. His grace can meet you even there. I want to show you a way to fight as you walk forward in God's grace towards you. For you younger ones, maybe, who are living in a very sexually saturated world, how can you fight to honour God with your body, with your life, with your, with your mind, with your attitudes? How can you hold your ground, right? Because there is a ferocious tide that is intent on sweeping your feet out from underneath you, whether you are single or whether you are married, adult. How do you hold your ground? Well, the answer, I think, may surprise you. Let's have a look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting from verse 18, down to the end of the chapter. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, Paul says, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Step one, I have three steps to fight. Step one, this one may be surprising. I think it's surprising because so often in the Bible we see so much fight language, right? When we're thinking about sin, when we're thinking about temptation, we see so much fight language in the Bible. So we memorize passages about the armor of God. Good, good. Keep doing that. We need it desperately. We memorize verses about the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith and we love the idea of Christian victory coming through standing firm. Stand firm, therefore, Paul says so often. And we love it. We say, Amen. But when it comes to sexual sin, to broken and dysfunctional expressions of human sexuality, Paul says, run away. Run away. I think it's because Paul knows. He understands the damaging power of misdirected sex. The destruction that comes through lives that are torn apart after they've been joined in ways that we can't even fathom. And he says, the best offense is defense. That means that we need to know the environments that are most dangerous to us. It's going to be different for all of us. Satan knows us so well. He is the most phenomenal student of the human heart. He's been studying us since the day that we walked the planet. There's nothing new in Satan's arsenal. He knows how to come around, how to try this angle, where this chink is, where that gap is. He knows where he needs to have a full-on frontal assault or where he needs to come in from the sides sneakily. We need to know the environments that are most dangerous to us. 
We need to recognize in advance where I will be at my weakest. We need to know that we are most vulnerable when we are isolated. We need to run to the safety of family who can stand with us in the fight. We need to run from the shame of sin and run to the mercy of God. We need to run from the bravado and the false masks that we wear. And we need to run to honestly admitting our stumbling and our faults before Him. We need to run to confession. But Paul says when it comes to sexual dysfunction, sexual immorality, don't think that you've got this. I'm going to stand firm. I'm going to stand against it. Paul says, no, run away, right? Monty Python, search for the Holy Grail. Run away. That's okay. That was step one. Step two, right? You fight immorality with worship. Most people feel as though sexual immorality is a lust issue. Maybe you think that about your own struggle. I've thought that about mine. Most people feel as though sexual immorality is a lust issue. And although lust is certainly a problem, underneath it is a much bigger issue. Underneath immorality is a worship problem. We humans need to worship something. Love that I didn't arrange that with Tim this morning, that you asked people to talk about what worship is. But we need to worship something. We're born to do it. If we don't acknowledge God, we look for something else that will satisfy. Because that's what worship is. It's our our attempt so often to try and find something and elevate something, put some type of false god on some type of idol that we think will give us what we need. If I will just worship this, if I can just sacrifice that, if I can just do this, then it will supply me what I feel is lacking in my life. That's the basis of all false worship in this world. Always has been. We elevate false messiahs, hoping that they will satisfy what we are missing. There's some type of void in us, and we can feel it, and we try to fill it. And so the things that we think will fill it best, we worship. We elevate. We honor. We give time to. We give money to. We give attention to. Our imagination to. So we can fight broken expressions of our sexuality by seeing a better saviour. By acknowledging the way our false gods have let us down. Right? By tearing sex from the throne and elevating the true king. We fight with seeing a better king and pursuing Him in worship. 
The first thing Paul says, when you want to fight sexual deviation, sexual brokenness, finding some sort of sexual satisfaction outside of where God has designed it, he says the first thing you do to fight, run. Run away. Once you've run away, come back into your heart and say, who am I worshipping? What, what do I think that this sexual pursuit is going to give me? So we fight immorality with worship. The last one. We fight immorality by discovering that my identity is in Jesus. Right? You have a tough battle in front of you. I have a tough battle in front of you. Satan is hell-bent on tearing apart anything good that God is doing in us. That's his sole aim in life, you know that? And not because he cares about you or I one little bit. We mean nothing to him. He just hates God. So he hates the things that God loves most. Therefore, he hates you. The first thing I want you to see here, at the, at the very heart of this response, is to know that you are in Christ. You are in Christ. He holds you. Your identity is him. Who are you? When someone says, who are you? You can say, I'm not sure who I am, but I know Jesus and I'm in Him. God resides in you. We say that so easily. Oh, God's in my heart. God resides in us. When God wanted a house to live in, He chose you to be the house. You get that? And you might think this morning that you're some type of run-down house, some sort of battered old rental. That you look at yourself as a, as a piece of um, uh, housing in the, in the real estate and you think, I'm just one of those knock-em-down, rebuild type things. But you're not. Paul says that you're a temple. You're a temple. So how does this identity discovery help us, right? Paul says that every act of immorality is a deliberate defacement of God's house. A, a public act of graffiti almost on the stained glass windows of the grand cathedral of your life because God is in you. God is in you, he says. And you can use that identity as you fight... And as you grasp, as you hold on to God, it's God's stamp of authority and ownership on your life. Right? God isn't in you on a short-term lease. He bought you, right? You don't have to be sitting here this morning just wondering, I wonder when the lease is up and I'm going to be booted back out on the street. You know what the rental market's like now today? You don't have to think that. God bought you. That's what Paul says here. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. God owns you. God holds you. He lives in you. 
And that identity is a weapon against adultery. It's a weapon against finding dissatisfying ways to express our sexuality. Paul's got a lot more to say. So we're going to leave it because it's going to fold over into chapter 7 and it's going to get a little bit tricky. And it's tricky because all of us have a different story when it comes to this. Yeah. We've come from all sorts of paths of joy in our sexual expression and from pain. From partners who have torn things from our life and walked away. Left us feeling battered and broken. Maybe from your own choices as you sought for something out there that was going to fill something in here and you looked for it in every other place apart from God. But we've all walked here today from a different path. But I want you to hear this morning that God's not coming in here with the stick and the broom to clean house. He's warning us, yes, but He's calling us. Come and find peace and satisfaction in me. I hope you can join us next week as we continue to push into this subject a little bit. It's uncomfortable, I know, at times, but we can trust that God is good. In His Word, He can bring healing and joy for hope in the future. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that our words, that our thinking would be satisfying in Your sight, and Lord, we pray and trust they have been. Lord, for the, the broken places that are maybe feeling a little bit raw this morning, Spirit of God, will you come and bring healing? Will you bring joy? Will you bring satisfaction in ways that we've never been able to find before? Lord, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. And Lord, we rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen.